Well, as we close our, our last service for 2014, and we look forward now to a new year, and I was looking through the scriptures for some wise words that were, would help us all to grow, succeed, even thrive in 2015. You know, everyone wants to start out a new year right. I know we want to do that. Many of you have probably already joined a gym and gotten a membership there. Perhaps you're thinking about balancing that budget. Maybe you're trying to resolve that, that last vice, trying to overcome that habit that you've been trying to for so many years. My hope today is this passage will provide all of us some very practical, practical advice for the new year. James is one of Jesus' half-brothers. He was very practical. He's a no-nonsense kind of guy. Many theologians classify this letter as wisdom literature. It's proverbial. That means it's everyday common sense wisdom in common, day, common everyday language. James says in his book, To live wise and godly, do this. Don't do that. Or behave in this way, and you can expect this other result. As I mentioned earlier, I don't really want each of us to take this text as a scathing um, or a lashing. I'd like us to receive it as God's wisdom. When applied, it'll make our lives better. Turning these verses into practice will preserve our family relationships. It'll make our church stronger. It will help you as well. It'll help you in your businesses. It'll help you in school, in your career. These principles will strengthen everything you do. And especially like those who are are young with us today to pay special attention because these words of wisdom from James will help you to chart a course as you head into your lives and you strive to succeed. This is really precious material. Concerning some bad habits, my family and I were talking about years gone past and some family members of ours that at one point had smoked cigarettes and then later on in life had finally kicked the habit, took that courageous step, very difficult step. We started talking about how impressive it is that, that quitting a habit like smoking, even late in life, can alter your life's course. It can preserve your life. It can strengthen you and improve the quality of your living. That's very much so with God's Word. That is true with Proverbs, with God's wisdom literature. Even late in life, when you receive God's Word, it can substantially improve your standard of living, your quality of living. If you set to adopt godly principles and realign your mind to God, He has wonderful things in store for you in 2015. So let's begin, dive into James. In James chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Everyone stumbles in many ways, and in speech... That's no exception. If you no longer stumble often in your speech, you become perfect, James says, or mature. James doesn't imply that you and I 
would achieve sinless perfection in this life. That isn't possible. We read in Colossians, we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. This term complete is the same Greek word that James uses here for perfect. It's called teleos. It means you finally matured. This is every Christian's goal. How then, in verse 2, does James say, spiritually maturity is outwardly demonstrated? Once speech is controlled, the body can be controlled as well. We will discover today in our, in our text that our physical body follows the direction of the tongue. This is an important theme in the following verses. The words that you speak will direct or steer your bodily behavior. But before we get to that, James provides a warning in the opening verse. Many Bible paraphrases often translate this, Do not quickly aspire to become teachers. Before you teach others, you should be the type of person who doesn't stumble easily in your words. Of course, in some regard, every one of us is a teacher. Parents teach their children. People in society teach others through actions. But James would be speaking here of a more official capacity. Your translation may say master or schoolmaster. This verse would advise people who are aspiring to the role of teaching the Bible. Because Bible teachers will be scrutinized in open view, their words and their actions naturally become a role model for everyone who sees them. And that possesses the ability to cause others, especially new believers, to stumble. Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 17, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. But woe to him through who they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and if he were thrown into the sea, than if he were to cause one of these little ones to stumble. God is warning people, if you are aspiring to teaching, you had better not become a stumbling block to others. And teaching is not my primary point this morning, but with this verse we just can't simply sidestep it. A few things make church leaders more nervous than someone who quickly wants to fast track to the role of Bible teacher. James is implying a Christian should possess some reservation about assuming a teaching role. In fact, most of the time the giftedness of teaching is not discovered by the individual themselves, but it is discovered by others around that individual. Uh, current leaders will normally recognize that gift, and they will then encourage that individual to pursue teaching. Uh, in Titus Chapter 1, verse 5, the Apostle Paul tells his friend, a, a young pastor named Titus, he says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, that is, pastor teachers, in every city as I directed you. Like pastors and church leaders today, Titus was commissioned to identify the next generation of church leaders and then help to equip them. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas when they're out in mission work, in the same way they identified competent pastors and appointed them in, in the areas, the regions of Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And then Paul instructed another pastor named Timothy. In 2 Timothy 
chapter 2, verse 2, it says, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Bible teachers are not first self-identified. When you talk to or, or hear successful teachers across the country, Bible teachers and pastors who've remained in the pulpit for decades, they've been successful, they haven't shipwrecked their ministries, you'll find that a large number of them first resisted, in a sense, becoming a teacher. After that, they did various ministries, sensing a call of God in their life. They are equipped through trials, various ministry preparations. Perhaps they went to seminary or understudied someone else. And at the encouragement of church leaders around them, combined with God's call to pastor, they finally aspire to that responsibility in accordance with 1 Timothy chapter 3. They eventually come to the realization they no longer could envision themselves doing anything else but teaching God's word to God's people. Now in contrast... And throughout Scripture, as you find men like the Judaizers that you're familiar with who taught false doctrine and were dividing teachers or dividing churches, who typically appointed them? Most of the time they appointed themselves. During the church age, the teachers God approves for his church don't identify themselves. God elevates them through circumstances and trials and learning and the wisdom especially of other people around them. That identification process is admittedly different than the Old Testament. The Levite priests were identified through what? Lineage. They are identified by the family they are born into, the tribe of Levi. And of course the prophets, they are identified by God. And how were they known to be a true prophet? What they spoke, the prophecy they spoke, came to happen. And there, they did verifiable miracles. So, very much like the Old, uh, Old Testament, the New Testament uh, sees that people are not first identified the same way, but, in fact, they are identified by others. God identified them, their lineage identified them. Same in the New Testament, they're identified by others that are around them. The point that I want to make on this is there are no coffee shop churches. You'll find a lot nowadays that people really don't want to be part of a church. They maybe don't get along with the church and they decide to take it upon themselves with no one else identifying them as starting their own church. Beware of that situation. Enough on that topic. Let's focus on our main text today, which is the tongue. The next verses are going to illustrate a phenomenon of, such, of how such a small member as the tongue influences such a very large body. The tongue is only weighs about 70 grams. So look now in verse 3. It says, Now if we put the bits into horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and driven by strong winds, they are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, 
and yet it boasts of great things. Like a small rudder on a huge ship, the tongue exerts tremendous influence over our behavior. There are three things I'd like you to observe as we go through the following verses. First, our words directly affect our actions, both morally and physically. Our words directly influence our actions, morally and physically. Second, our speech affects the destiny of our lives, the course of our lives. Then James, third, is going to reveal how our speech affects us relationally. James says, now watch me. He says, see how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Look how great a forest a little fire can kindle. In our first point, we can see why James is so concerned about speech in this passage. God says your speech will unquestionably direct your physical and moral behavior. This is a fact. Look in verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body. Where your speech points, your body is going to follow. James has already said in verse 2, if anyone is mature enough to avoid stumbling, he can then control the body. His point is, if you can't control stumbling in your words, you're not going to be able to control your bodily actions. Careless words or immoral language will migrate out to your actions. It's going to be in a very bad way. I don't think any of us here needs to be a rocket scientist to understand that James here is not talking about that 70-gram muscle that's in our mouth. He's talking about what is behind the muscle, our psyche. He says we should intuitively, intuitively understand that speech is a reflection of our mind and our heart. And if your tongue is a fire, it says your mind resides in that world of iniquity. There's an extremely practical application here. The more you verbally repeat something that is immoral, the easier it is to commit it. Once you verbalize the act, you'll be drawn to that act. Boy, I'd sure like to make that guy pay. Or if I had the chance, you should know what I would do to him or her. It doesn't matter whether the act that you verbalize includes violence or shoplifting, sexual promiscuity, or an adulterous situation. Once you have the nerve to verbalize it, you're dangling on the edge of committing it. This is one of the reasons, by the way, that... In society, when you, when you go to the civil authorities, police, FBI, CIA, they realize this. They aren't studying the Bible, but it's very intuitive. When someone has verbalized a threat against the president or someone else, a neighbor, a family member, they take it very, very ser- seriously. Because once they have voiced it, either on Facebook or to another person, they are very dangerously close to committing that act. Passing thoughts are one thing. I know we all struggle with that. But verbalizing them lights a flame. Once a word leaves your mouth, it's like lighting kindling and setting it outside of a campfire in a dry forest. Once it's taken off, 
you have lost control of it. I sat on a, on a jury while I was out in the mission field. I got selected for a conspiracy to commit murder trial. Very interesting. One of the most interesting experiences I've ever come up on. This man who lived in Oklahoma, very successful man, wealthy, had a large home estate, um, had a daughter who married a dentist in another state, and his daughter fell very ill. Organs were failing. There had to be amputations. It was a very grave situation, ugly situation. We got to see pictures and everything uh, throughout the trial of everything that happened. And because of that, and possibly stress in her marriage, uh, she moved back to Oklahoma, where the family took care of her as she slowly uh, continued to decline in health. Meantime, the marriage was failing, and there was a custody battle, and the dentist was going to win. Uh, he had a good reputation, was more easily to care for her. There were separate states struggling over this. And anyhow, this, this father... He had a handyman that helped him around the yard a lot. He had a lot of projects that were going on. So this handyman would come around, kind of a dark figure, and the father expressed to him at one point in some way, in some words, I'd like to kill that guy. Days went on. More time spent with that man. The expression of the rage, of the anger towards his son-in-law caused him to continue to verbalize this. That then, in turn, enraged the handyman that really liked the guy. The handyman liked him, wanted to help him out, and the handyman's at a, another person's house helping with the project, and everybody knew about the discontent and the family and the struggle. And the handyman expressed to a woman that was down the road, she said, I really want to take care of this man's problem. She said, how can you do that? And she's thinking... Legally, problems between states and custody and stuff. How can you do that? And he said, I'd do it with a hammer. She's like, we're talking several states away, a thousand miles away. So a couple weeks pass, and I know this is a long story, but I think it will very uh, illustrate our point very well. The man ended up driving to that other state, finding the residence of that dentist, broke into his home, he wasn't there, went downstairs, started rummaging through things to make it look like it was a, a theft. And what do you suppose he found downstairs? A hammer. It was acted out just as that man and that handyman talked about it, as they verbalized it. Both of them are in prison, and a dentist is gone. Make no mistake, once you verbalize an immoral act, you're dangerously close to committing it. Now, continuing now to the second point that I had, our speech affects the destiny of our lives. In the middle of verse 6, it says, The tongue defiles the entire body, and it sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every species of birds and beasts of reptiles and of creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Let me first state the obvious for the young folks. You don't typically see people who are vulgar in their language 
excel in society. At least he didn't used to a whole lot. But what you see on TV doesn't reflect the business environment, the work environment, the school environment. As we enter 2015, I'd make a special plea to our youth to realize your spoken words are going to affect your life destiny. The word for course here, in course of life, means a wheel or a circle. Some translations say it sets the, f- the fire, the whole course of your life or the whole circle of life. What you say and what you don't say will affect and chart the, the course of your life. Where you end up in school or college, what career you attain, how much money you make, who you marry, what, God, what roles God offers you to work in church. These are all going to be affected as you map out your choice of words through life. Your speech will alter your life, either for the better or for the worse. You absolutely must tame the tongue. You might object and say, well, look at the text, Pastor. Literally it says, but no one can tame the tongue. No human can. But there's one who can, and that is the Holy Spirit of God who lives in you, if you're a believer. He will empower you to tame the tongue. He'll diffuse your rage. He'll help you to avoid that deadly poison that has the ability to destroy your life, even as a young person. If you want to chart a course for success in 2015, I'd say actually for your entire life, it will begin with your tongue. You don't always have to express every opinion. And you and I don't always have to defend ourselves when insulted. We can trust that if we refrain refrain from sinning with our mouth, that our God is in control of defending us. You don't have to lie or cheat or insult to succeed in school or in the business world. Do you remember what happened with the Israelites as that last plague hit Egypt? And as the Israelites were going to be led out by Moses, do you remember what Moses was told by God to suspect and expect? Here they are going to need supplies. They're going to need food and clothing and gold and silver, it says in in Exodus chapter 3. And what does God tell Moses to tell the people to expect? He says, I will grant Israel favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it will, shall be that when you go, you will not go out empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, and the woman who lives in her house, are, uh, and the woman who lives in her house, articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on to your sons and your daughters." Thus, you will plunder the Egyptians. Exodus 12 documents that this is exactly what happened when they left Egypt and went out into the wilderness. God granted the Israelites favor in the households of the Egyptians so that God allowed them to plunder the Egyptians. They took their wealth with them. The point is this. If you're applying for college or entering a job interview, let's say you're pursuing a business deal, you don't have to lie and cut down the competition in order to get the deal. You simply have to put on your best representation. You always do your best. And if God wants you in that college 
or if he wants you to have that multi-million dollar business deal, he's going to grant you favor in the eyes of the decision maker. If he doesn't grant you favor in that situation, then he doesn't want you in that school or in that business relationship. Pursue the next best option and God will chart the course of your life through opening doors and through closing doors by adjusting your life circumstances. Don't set your life and reputation ablaze by foul language. I've spoken before about a friend of mine who is in Congress. His name's Kevin Kramer. And uh, he realized that if God, he's a Christian, he realized if God wanted him in D.C., God would grant him favor in the eyes of the people. Kevin lost twice in the 1990s against a very popular incumbent in North Dakota. The result was, what was the result of losing? He ended up with a very successful career and many years of prosperity and a a wonderful family outside of Congress. Then, years later in 2012, the door opened again. He ran and then he won. Then the door opened to rerun and he won again in 2014. Now, Kevin would be the first one to admit that he's an imperfect man, but as a Christian, he strives to guard his words. In fact, with politicians, at least the smart ones, I found that they do not typically say more than necessary to make the point. See, they're always walking through wet gasoline. They don't especially want to light their feet on fire by saying something that they shouldn't have. We see that all the time. The course of their lives can change over just a few words. When I'd email a, a politician and, and, and want to meet them for lunch or dinner or something, very often it was a one-word response. Applebee's. That's it. And over time, I was like, well, are they just being short with me? Am I taking too much of their time? You know, they really not want to go to lunch? And in actuality, they were guarded against saying anything like, Let's go to Applebee's because I really do not like the food over at Bennigan's. Or they wouldn't say, let's not go to the Cracker Barrel because such and such always goes there and I don't want to run into him. They knew that excessive words could set the course of their life on fire. Less words are wise words. Proverbs 10 says, On the lips of the discerning wisdom is found... But a rod is for the back of him who lacks understanding. Wise men store up knowledge, but with the mouth of the foolish, ruin is at hand. So careless and flippant words can chart the course of your life to the point where it's not recoverable. It's easy to understand why James later said in chapter 5, he said, just let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Isn't that enough? That leads us to our third and and final point concerning relationships. Again, we're looking in verse 8. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. 
The course of life that we chart with our words doesn't only affect our careers or our finances or our reputations. They affect the future of our relationships with our families, within our churches. Unkind words destroy relationships. Both in chapters 4 and 5, James appeals to the church to not speak against one another. There's a very practical reason for that. Once words leave your tongue, you can't gather them back in again. In the year 2015, your enjoyment through relationships, through your family, through your businesses, will be enhanced by not speaking your mind. From time to time, you know, we've all heard people lament, Oh, I just had to say something. I couldn't keep it in anymore. No, actually, you could have kept it in. You didn't have to say it much of the time. You know, the Bible never teaches us that we experience peace and prosperity after getting something critical off of our chest. Actually, it says, after you've said those words, just the opposite happens. We enter into strife and hardship, all because we're just simply getting something off of our chest. You know what I usually experience? One or two days after refraining to say something that I really felt I needed to get off my chest, a day or two later I really experience peace. When I'm smart enough to refrain. Because by that time, enough time has passed, or the circumstances change, or it just really doesn't matter anymore. And the words were never said. Typically, I just forget about it. But what about the person who has gotten it off their chest? They vented to their friends, said damaging or impulsive comments about others. Do they experience peace? They don't experience peace. They've just lit, lit a fire. But now it's out of control. They can no longer control it. Now they're in damage control. The course of their life has now changed. It's usually not for the better. It's usually for the worse. Now they have to exert all their energy just for damage control. Once a person is vented toward another, you tell me then, what typically happens to that relationship? It sours. It turns south. Becomes uncomfortable, possibly. Um, Then what do the people do? Normally they withdraw from the relationship. This is true about a family. It's true about a business. It's true about a church. Usually when people leave a relationship, it's not because of the others. Usually it's because of something they've said. And they just don't want to be reconciled. At that time, they just want to disappear. They leave. There'll be a brother that doesn't speak to another brother for decades. And there'll be children that don't go back for Christmas dinner with their parents for years. There'll be people that disappear from relationships and churches and other things and you won't see them again. All because somebody had to get something off their chest. I'd say in 2015, year 2015, 
we'll all be very blessed if we don't strike that match. If we do what James says to Christians in chapter 1, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You might say one more thing. I don't know what to do. I can't control it. You heard earlier how I said that God the Holy Spirit can control it. It can. The Holy Spirit can. He, not it, He can control the tongue. Do you have the Holy Spirit of God in you? Perhaps you're struggling to control your speech, your actions. Maybe you're struggling to control it through your own natural strength. That's just your own flesh. Here's what Scripture says about that. It says you can't do it by yourself. Romans 8, verse 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you Christians are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. You need to be changed. James 3, verse 11 says, wrapping up our text, Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives? Or can a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. That's a fact. In order for a vine to produce figs, it would have to be completely recreated. The Bible describes that as being born again. That is, you're allowing God to save you from your sins and allowing Him to take over your life. Jesus said in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. There was a ruler at that time that was with Jesus. His name was Nicodemus. He's a religious leader. And in that day, he was really confused by this idea of physical rebirth. That's all he could think of was birth from the womb. So he replies to Jesus and says, How can a man be born again when he is old? He's thinking the physical. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus responded, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Each one of us has been born once physically through our mother's womb, but the Bible tells us at physical birth we are still spiritually dead to God. We need to be born again. We, need, we are dead in our sins and we do not naturally worship or obey God. We need a spiritual rebirth. We need the Holy Spirit to enter our lives. God generously offers us spiritual rebirth when we recognize that our sins have separated from Him. That His Son came to restore this relationship that was broken. And He willingly lived a life of complete obedience, sinless, and then he offered himself up to die for us and for our sins. Then he rose from the grave after he was murdered, proving that he was the Son of God. He was seen by over 500 people at one time. Our Lord promises that if we accept his Son, that his Holy Spirit will come into our lives and we will be born again. That will help our speech moving forward into 2015. I hope as we enter this new year now, 
uh, that you've asked God to do that in your life. Scripture says, He who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. Let's begin with a new outlook and one which honors Jesus Christ in the year to come. Will you pray with me? Lord God, forgive us when we fail you. Whether that be in our speech, Lord, whether it be in our actions or both. Lord, we're so grateful for your wisdom that you share with us and we know intuitively when we hear it, that's right. The flesh is so strong in wanting to drag us back to what comes naturally and that is sin. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us here as we enter into the new year that we would be wise, that we'd listen to your word, that we'd chart a new course, Lord, and uh, the words that would come from our mouth would be to praise you, encourage others, help those who are in need, Lord, to edify. Lord, we pray that you'll also use our words to tell others about the gospel. Use it for that which is profitable, Lord, and that is to tell others how much mercy you've had on us through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we have a wonderful year ahead in 2015. So many opportunities, Lord. Uh, So many wondrous ways to serve you and love one another and succeed in business or go to a new college. Lord, to start a new family, to have children. Everything that we do, Lord, is so impacted by our words. We pray that your spirit would strengthen us to do well. Lord, that's our prayer as we begin 2015. Please help us to achieve that and do all that we do to honor you. In the holy and exalted name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you, give you his peace. Amen.